Hi, I'm Lois Wilson, and as he said, I'm co-founder of St. Ames, which I started with my sister. So, a little bit about us. We grew up in London, we grew up in Hackney, and as anyone will tell you, Hackney in the 90s was not what you know now. My grandparents was the ones that really inspired us. My family always had a focus on education, and my grandparents had come from Barbados. My granddad, for example, was one of, I think, about seven children, and he was... In his life, he didn't even have shoes to go to school. They used to pass the shoes down, and as the youngest, he wouldn't have shoes. So he came from there to building his life in the UK, and he had built a lifestyle with my grandma where they had a house in Surrey. And I remember going down to my grandparents' garden and seeing how beautiful it was and seeing how wonderfully kept their house was and just being inspired, the juxtaposition between the reality of being an inner-city child around so much just city ugliness and then you know, escaping to a beautiful place of natural beauty. My sister and I were constantly inspired by this. My mum, she had the career path of a teacher, and she chose that career path because she wanted to be there for us. But she was at heart an artist. She was so brilliant that her first portrait got into the National Portrait Gallery in a national competition when she was young. But being from Caribbean parents, the whole thing is to be professional, you want to do a profession. And so everyone had drilled into her that that was the path that she should go for. But every day I saw, as she got ready to get to work, that it wasn't something that inspired her. She would sketch in her free time. It wasn't something that she really... I just saw that there was a path that she should have taken that would have more fulfilled her than the one that she did. And so I was always aware of that. My mum decided to, when we were around 16, to move to America. And so we moved to America, and I had always had it in my mind that I wanted to be a lawyer. I had watched Ali McBeal, I was down with the suits, I enjoyed the speaking, like I just loved telling people what colour the sky is, I love it. And I was ready for it, until I studied law. Uh, and then I realised that um, in Canadian high school, sometimes you get a chance to study politics, you get a chance to study law, around the same time in England you'd be doing A-levels. So I got quite a good little introduction to it. And I realized how much reading it would be and research it would be and long hours of everything that I did not find passionate. And so then I thought to myself, actually, your day-to-day -day existence is sometimes more important than what you call your job. So yes, you'd be called a lawyer, but if it's not what you find passionate every day, then do you really want to do that? So I thought, okay, I don't want to do that. Free for what am I going to do next? And so I did some work experience with creatives. And one thing I realized about creative people is they always seemed happy. They had an inner sense of peace. I mean, they were broke. You could tell. But <laughs> they just seemed happy. It was like a little church, and I wanted in. And so my mum moved to America. As you could tell, we move around a lot. I think my mum, again, just by not being fulfilled with her career path. She was always itchy at least to change of where she was. So she moved to America, we came with her. She was studying and I was on a student visa, so I wasn't allowed to work. And my sister and I were stuck in this big house in America. I had glass at the front, I had glass at the back. And it might seem cute when you're with the real estate agent, but you have no privacy. So I was bored with no privacy. I couldn't go from the top of the house to the bottom of the house without somebody seeing me with my hair up on. It was a nightmare. I was bored and in a glass fishbowl. And at the end of it, I just decided I'm going to study in America. So I enrolled in Savannah College of Art and Design, and I studied fashion PR. And this was a very interesting time to be in America, because it was around the time of the recession. It was also around the time of Barack Obama becoming president. So you were seeing immense despair, and you're also seeing immense hope. And it was interesting to see which one would win out. Would the country crash, or would this kind of miracle I was down south, it seemed like a miracle because it was such an opposing view to what he was trying to do happening. Which one would win out? And I noticed that 
both won out at the same time from different people, from different perspectives. So for some people, their life did crumble. The things that they thought were safe fell apart. And for him and for the people who uh, wanted that to happen, that happened also. And I realized that it really just depends on where you're standing. So I really realized that actually, nothing actually is safe. So you might as well just make your own plan. If nothing is actually guaranteed, then you might as well march the beat of your own drum. So I came back to the UK to study because here I could work and I could study, which meant I had optimum hustle. If it was like a game, I just pressed optimum hustle. And I basically just went nuts. So I enrolled in UAL, London College of Fashion. I came over for the interview, Michaela was with me. I got in and then from that point on, I just stayed in the UK, found a job and I've lived in the most ridiculous of situations. I lived in a house, for example, it was a council house, and it was a... I think the person was subletting it. I don't think anything about the situation was legal. But it was cheap. <laughs> but it was cheap. Five other girls, one house, one bathroom. And I was sitting there braiding my cousin's hair one day when she came over, and someone pulled up, like, walked up outside the window, and they just pulled, like, the gangster kill shot that you see in movies, pow, pow, at someone as this person ran by. And you think you don't know what to do in that situation. But like he was on the other side of the glass. We just stopped, dropped, and rolled out the room. Because I was scared he was going to turn around and see us. He was this close to us. And I was just like, OK, that's it. I'm done. Like I can't do London. This place is crazy. And we were so dramatic. We left in headscarves and sunglasses. And I went down to my uncle's house in Kent. And I was like, that's it. I'm living in the country, and I'm just going to travel into work because London's too dangerous. And I remember calling the landlord. And he had smugness, like, oh, we'll see. Like, you'll, OK, cool. And then in two weeks, I realized that actually the travel was too expensive, the rent was cheap. And you know, I, I think my weave is bulletproof, so I'm going to go back. <laughs> I'm going to go back to London. And I stayed in that apartment, it was good. I've lived with a crazy old lady. This lady swore to me that she was possessed. Like, she believed that she was possessed. She said she went to a priest, he told her this. And then she also, at one point, tried to get me to fight her. Of course, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> fight me, fight me. <laughs> I wasn't about to do it. Um, so I moved out of that situation as well. And throughout this, me and Michaela were just optimum hustle. So I finished university, and I didn't have the patience or really the time to find the ideal job that I wanted, so I did financial marketing. And the great thing about finance is when you come from a creative perspective, you can add whatever you want to it. So we came up with really great campaigns, it was brilliant, but I got the itch, the direction itch. I just knew it wasn't where I wanted to go. So I sat down with my boss, and he was all, hey, no, stick with the path. Like He laid it out for me of what was his ultimate destination, really, I guess. And I just looked at it, and I was like, that's not at all what I want. So um, I thought to myself, wow, OK, so if that's a destination and that's not what I want, then why am I doing this day to day? So I just dropped that. I said, sorry, I don't want that. And I decided to discover what I actually wanted to do. And so now my first priority was anything but full-time work, because I felt like it made no sense doing something full-time, which I knew I didn't want to do. It would make more sense doing something part-time and in the spare time having the freedom to work on my passions. And so I embarked on part-time temping and all sorts of entrepreneurial pursuits. And the funny thing is, when you're looking for a full-time job, you can never find them. When you don't want a full-time job, every recruiter is coming out the woodwork trying to make me work full-time. And I was like, no. And they're like, but what are you even doing? Like, I don't know. I just know I can't be with you full-time. I was tying every single business. My sister and I, we did everything from hair to marshmallows, not at the same time. And <laughs> we really just continued and continued. And at this time, I'd have a lot of smug friends, friends who had got the perfect job they wanted out of uni. And they'd be like, say, what are you doing? You seem jack of all trades and master of none. When are you going to stick on something? And 
I could have taken on their opinions, but one thing I realized is they don't understand my story. They don't understand my struggle. They didn't see the recession. They didn't see what I saw with Obama becoming president. They didn't see people's dreams crumble. They don't have the same perspective as me. So why would I take your perspective on what I'm doing? I'm looking at the long-term goal of my life. You're looking at what you see right now. It's absolute madness to take on somebody else's opinion when you know your story. So I cut a lot of people out. A lot of people would ask me, does it pay the bills when I was doing my passions? And I would say, are you going to pay a bill? And they cleared themselves out. It was brilliant. So I was free and able to do exactly what I wanted to do. And so we happened upon chocolate. And the great thing about chocolate is it is a raw ingredient that is accessible to get your hands onto. It's something that is, you can add your maximum creativity to. And so we wanted to apply the same feeling my Nana gave me with her beautiful garden to something that people could touch and eat and experience. And as an artist, I think you win the most when you allow people to be fully immersed into your world. And when you allow someone to eat something you've created, it's a real intimate experience. And I think the more people can interact with what you created, the more it resonates with them. And I think that's why chocolate really took off for us. And so we did this, and everyone thought it was ridiculous how luxury they were, the price point, but we stuck to it. We didn't listen to our opinions, and it did really well. Within the first year, we were in Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, and Fennec, and we were like, this is more than we ever dreamed of, but that's a lie, because as you know, I dream anyway. So I kind of half expected it, but was shocked it happened so soon. And then I was like, okay, so now what? And again, we wanted to make sure that we could immerse people in our artistic vision. And so we felt like a space and experience would be the thing to do. And so against all investors, because nobody wanted to invest, we saved and we scrimped and we hustled and we managed to get ourselves a shop at the end of our first year. And in opening this shop, it's been called the most Instagrammable um, cafe in London. We've been in timeout. We haven't had any PR. We didn't tell anyone we're opening. It's just naturally built itself up. We get thousands of new followers a week. And it's just been crazy, the people that we've seen come in, celebrities, all sorts, and everybody's experiencing something that we've created that people told us was crazy, but not from my perspective, because this isn't the end goal. And so I guess I'll leave you with an analogy, because I love analogies. It's important to set a destination in mind, and it's important to know it for yourself. Say if you're in New York and you plan to drive to San Francisco, and you plan to take a car, it's important to know the difference between destination and vehicle. Your job is your vehicle. So let's say you plan to take a car, and the car breaks down. What are you going to do? Are you going to change route? Are you going to walk? Is it a shame to take a bike now? Is it a shame to walk? Is it a shame to crawl? It's not, because you know your destination. And someone might look at you and say, oh my goodness, look at you crawling, how embarrassing. But not to you, you have a destination. Someone might offer you a really luxury ride in a Porsche to Atlanta instead, but that's not your destination. So it's important to not allow any of the different vehicles that you use to get to where you're trying to go to make you feel shame, to make you feel disheartened. And it's important to just continue where you're going, because at the end of the day, it's so fulfilling. When you set your destination, it's just ultimate freedom. So use your maximum hustle to get your ultimate freedom. Thank you.